Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Unwilling to depart from examples of the most revered authority, I avail myself of the occasion now presented to express the profound impression made on me by the call of my country to the station to the duties of which I am about to pledge myself by the most solemn of sanctions. The present situation of the world is indeed without a parallel, and that of our own country, full of difficulties. The pressure of these, too, is the most severely felt, because they have fallen upon us at a moment when the national prosperity being at a height not before attained, the contrast resulting from the change has been rendered the more striking. It is my good fortune, moreover, to have the path in which I am to tread lighted by examples of illustrious services successfully rendered and the most trying difficulties by those who have marched before me. Of those of my immediate predecessor, it might least become me here to speak. I may, however, be pardoned for not suppressing the sympathy with which my heart is full in the rich reward he enjoys in the benedictions of a beloved country, gratefully bestowed or exalted talents zealously devoted through a long career to the advancement of its highest interest and happiness. James Madison, Inaugural Address. Even with the spotlight on him, James Madison could not resist putting Thomas Jefferson front and center in his inaugural address. As we shall learn, though, dear friends, it would be Jefferson's legacy that would perhaps prove to be the greatest difficulty awaiting the incoming president. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. Five years into this project, Alex's support for this endeavor has never waned, and I cannot thank him enough for all that he does. From listening to me prattle on about some obscure fact that I just learned, to helping me review questions for interviews, to pitching in as an opening reader every time I ask. For this and for so much else, I'm forever grateful to have him in my life. Je t'aime avec tout mon cœur, mon mari. As described by historian Catherine Algor, quote, Spring had come to Washington City by March 4, 1809, bringing enough real sun that people from all over the country and the countryside turned out to see James Madison elevated to the highest and most honorable station. It had been a long road for the Madisons, and the president-elect had reached ever greater plateaus in the course of his political journey. But Inauguration Day 1809 would bring him to the highest point in American politics. Though they were quite aware of the challenges ahead, at least for a day, the Madisons would allow themselves an opportunity to celebrate in this city that they had grown with the past eight years. 1809 saw the opening of a bridge across the Potomac River linking Alexandria directly with Washington City 
at Maryland Avenue, a reflection of the growth of the district since it became the nation's capital in 1800. The 1810 census, though still a year away, would find that the population of the district overall had increased by nearly 10,000 individuals, with the largest jump in population being in Washington City, which grew from 3,210 inhabitants in 1800 to 8,208 in 1810. In the district, the section of the population which grew by the largest percentage was the free black population, which had doubled since 1800. By 1809, the District of Columbia had six banks with a combined banking capital of over $1.5 million. Shops had opened up in Washington City and Georgetown, quote, catering to luxury foods, jewelry, and clothes. In the decades since the federal government had moved to the district, two public schools had been open for the education of white children in the district whose families could not afford private school. However, as noted by Elizabeth Dowling Taylor of Washington, D.C., around the time of Madison's first inauguration, quote, The approach to Washington was so unremarkable that a number of travelers in period accounts remarked on the need to be told that they had crossed the city limits. Though not a booming metropolis by any stretch, there was clear progress being made, and Dolly Madison in particular was eager to make an even larger mark on the social life of the district than she already had. During her husband's tenure in Jefferson's cabinet, the Madison's home on F Street had become a social center for the capital city. On the rare occasions of an official event at the president's house, guests would often migrate over to the Madison's afterwards. As noted by Al Gore, quote, her, i.e. Dolly Madison's, events were not marked by an abundance of money spent, but rather it was only in hospitality and charity that her perfusion was unchecked. The Madisons did not just welcome Democratic Republicans to their table, but rather extended a hand across the factional aisle. Again from Al Gore, quote, If Americans across the country hoped that the two warring parties were reconciling in Jefferson's Washington, the only venue where that took place was Dolly's table. She did her best to bring everyone in the capital, locals, officials, and visitors, together under her roof. Now, for the first time since Abigail Adams had left in February 1801, a woman would be managing the household of the president's house on a full-time basis, and the incoming president's wife would no longer be hindered by Jefferson's strictures of Republican society. Instead, she could draw on her unique mix of, quote, inclusive Southern hospitality and easy manners, combined with sophisticated cuisine and wine. Dolly and James had already been working on plans for the house with a surveyor of public buildings, Benjamin Henry Latrobe, who Madison had already reassured of his reappointment to the post under his administration. The outgoing 10th U.S. Congress had helped the Madisons with financial resources to carry out their plans for the president's house by passing an appropriation for, quote, a sum not exceeding $14,000 for refurbishments. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The morning of March 4th would find the Madisons still at their home on F Street. And indeed, they would remain there a few days longer, even after the day's ceremonies were over, until outgoing President Thomas Jefferson finished wrapping up his affairs and made his way back to his home, Monticello. Cavalry units had gathered from Georgetown and Washington City proper in front of the house on F Street that morning, ready to escort Madison to the Capitol building. Madison had asked Jefferson to ride with him to the Capitol, but the retiring president declined the offer, opting instead to ride to the ceremonies on horseback, accompanied by his grandson, Jeff Randolph. Thus, Madison, in his, quote, American-made suit, fashioned from the wool of New York Merino sheep, boarded the horse-drawn carriage to carry him to Capitol Hill alone, though thousands lined the streets along the way, aiming to catch a glimpse of their incoming chief executive. As described by Al Gore, quote, the legislative building cast a more graceful silhouette on the landscape than it had upon the Madison's arrival eight years earlier. Gone were the two desolate boxes. The sections had been finished and joined. Jefferson, as well as around 10,000 citizens, greeted the president-elect upon his arrival, and they were joined by Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith, and Isaac Coles, Jefferson's private secretary, who would be retaining the role under Madison. One person who was notably absent from the proceedings was the incumbent vice president, George Clinton. As we discussed at the end of the Jefferson series, Clinton had made his own bid for the presidency in 1808, only to be thwarted by Madison and his supporters. As an added insult to injury, Clinton had been put forward by Madison's supporters as Madison's running mate and had won re-election to what was a rather insignificant office in the grand scheme of Washington politics. Small wonder as to why Clinton decided to stay away that day. Never the matter, the show went on without him. Incoming and outgoing president were escorted to the chamber of the House of Representatives, which, quote, had also been improved since Jefferson's inauguration. Everyone noted approvingly the slender fluted columns, topped not with the acanthus sleeves of classical Greek architecture, but with the agricultural emblem of North America, corn tassels. Though careful arrangements had been made for seating with the, quote, president in the speaker's chair, senators and cabinet members on the right, justices of the Supreme Court on the left, ladies on elevated seating, and ordinary people in the galleries, the gathered crowds were a bit more zealous and instead, quote, pushed open the doors, eagerly taking possession of the appropriated seats. Madison was shown to the front of the chamber by members of Congress, and enough order came about for the incoming president to deliver his inaugural address. Observers noted that, quote, he seemed scarcely able to stand, and his first words were nearly inaudible to most of those assembled. Though his confidence grew as he continued to read the words that he had scripted for the occasion, Observers remarked that, quote, his voice continued too low and feeble to reach the opposite side of the house. Ultimately, one observer remarked that Madison, quote, looked embarrassed. As noted by historian Noah Feldman, the content of his speech, which most would learn about later when it was printed, mostly focused on the challenges before the nation with both Britain and France, quote, violating neutral trade rights. Feldman asserts that, quote, Nothing in Madison's speech suggested that he felt any personal fulfillment or accomplished ambition in becoming president, or that he thought his election stood for some greater national transformation, as Jefferson's had in 1800. 
Madison instead spoke humbly of, quote, my own inadequacy to the presidency's high duties and asserted that, quote, if I do not sink under the weight of this deep conviction, it is because I find some support in a consciousness of the purposes and a confidence in the principles which I bring with me into this arduous service. Once his speech was done, Chief Justice John Marshall administered the oath of office to Madison, and he returned to the F Street house, where Dolly awaited him, quote, wearing a fine linen cambric gown and an elaborate bonnet, made of purple velvet and white satin and sporting white plumes. Though the reception at F Street had been intended for the Foreign Diplomatic Corps, as had been the case at the Capitol, others encroached upon the affair, and the Madisons rolled with the change of plans. The two would greet the crowd of well-wishers that had assembled, and observers noted that Dolly's approach, quote, blended a frank and affable Republican equality with an almost royal mean. If this wasn't enough of a break from the social protocol of the Jefferson presidency, that evening, the Madisons attended the first inaugural ball to be held in Washington, D.C. Indeed, though Jefferson's predecessors had attended similar balls, none had been held on inauguration night, so this marked yet another first. The ball was held at Long's Hotel on Capitol Hill, and although 400 invitations had been sent out, quote, a newspaper announcement of the event indicated that anyone who bought a ticket could attend. One can only imagine what Jefferson thought of the affair, which he dutifully attended as a show of support for the new president. However, he noted to Margaret Bayard Smith that, quote, it was the first ball he had attended in 40 years. Dancing had begun at 7, but the band played a different tune upon the arrival of the Madisons. A piece entitled Madison's March announced the entrance of the presidential party. Dolly Madison was escorted in by Captain Thomas Teen, the head of the Washington Navy Yard and one of the directors of the dancing assembly that had sponsored the event. Then, President Madison escorted in his sister-in-law, Anna Cutts. As described by Margaret Bayard Smith, Dolly wore, quote, a pale, buff-colored velvet dress made plain with a very long train but not the least trimming, and a beautiful pearl necklace, earrings, and bracelets. Her headdress was a turban of velvet in white satin from Paris, with two superb plumes, the bird of paradise feathers. Smith pronounced that Dolly, quote, looked a queen. Jefferson soon after made his exit, leaving the Madisons to the masses. The air became so stifling with the large crowd assembled in the ballroom, quote, that somebody had to break the window to let in some fresh air. The new president confided to a friend that, quote, I would much rather be in bed, but it wouldn't be until midnight before the Madisons made their way back to F Street to round out what had been to date the busiest inauguration day for any president entering a new term. The strains for Madison, however, were only just beginning. Then, as now, one of the first questions faced by any incoming president is who to bring into the cabinet to support the efforts of the administration. Jefferson had had a mostly stable cabinet for his tenure, with only the position of attorney general requiring replacements due to a resignation, then a death, respectively. Ironically, for Madison, that would be the only position that would not see any reshuffling as he took office. 
Attorney General Caesar A. Rodney agreed to stay in the post in the incoming administration. Likewise, though not part of the cabinet proper, Gideon Granger agreed to stay on as Postmaster General. Jefferson Secretary of War Henry Dearborn, however, was opting for a different path. In what we would now call a golden parachute, Dearborn was appointed as collector of the Port of Boston, a rather lucrative office for the person in the post. With his exit, Madison was able to offer the post at the War Department to Dr. William Eustace. Eustace, like so many prominent citizens of Massachusetts, had graduated from Harvard College. He served as a surgeon during the Revolutionary War and had briefly been drafted back into service as a surgeon in the force sent to combat Shays' Rebellion in 1786 and 1787. The year after, Eustace was elected to the State House of Representatives and won re-election until leaving office in 1794. Eustace was launched to national prominence in the Jefferson Wave of 1800 when he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and served two terms in that body. As discussed in episode 3.18, his re-election in 1802 had been a close one as he had been redistricted and pitted against a formidable candidate in the form of John Quincy Adams. Though he wasn't mentioned in episode 3.20, Eustace had been one of the House floor managers for the impeachment trial of Judge John Pickering in 1804. While the trial proved successful in removing Pickering, Eustace's re-election bid that year was not quite as successful, and Eustace would vacate his seat in 1805. Why, you ask, would Madison choose a man with limited military knowledge and who had been out of office for four years as his Secretary of War? Well, it must be remembered that, at the time, geographic balance was seen as important in cabinet selections. And especially for the Democratic-Republican Party that struggled in New England, having a solid Democratic-Republican from the region as part of Madison's official administration was thought to be a sign of good faith to win support in an area of the nation in which the party struggled to make inroads. Indeed, though cordial, Madison's short letter to Eustace of March 7th informing him of his appointment and confirmation by the Senate does not evoke any strong personal attachment, though Madison did stress that, quote, I need not add what your patriotism will suggest, that it is desirable, its duties should be entered upon with as little delay as may be consistent with the arrangements preparatory to your removal to the seat of government. In a contrast to the docile nature of the Eustace appointment, the rest of Madison's cabinet appointments would be mired in political drama. James Madison had worked alongside Albert Gallatin closely in Jefferson's cabinet for years and knew of his acumen with foreign affairs, economics, and administration. Given the challenges with Anglo-American relations, and Madison's preference for using economic pressure rather than military, it is not surprising that Gallatin emerged as Madison's top choice to take charge of the State Department. The problem, however, was that Gallatin, despite being a major force in the Jefferson administration and a long-standing leader in the Democratic-Republican ranks, had made a number of enemies over the years. Longtime listeners may remember way back in episode 3.3, that Gallatin's original appointment as Treasury Secretary had been a recess appointment due to Federalist opposition. When Madison starts circulating his preference for Gallatin at State in the days and weeks leading up to his inauguration, he immediately started getting pushback, this time 
from Democratic-Republican leaders. Now, there are a number of reasons for this opposition. One of the reasons given by Senator William Branch Giles, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, for objecting to Gallatin's appointment was the fact that Gallatin was of foreign birth. While it is true that Gallatin was born in Geneva and his native language was French, in a country that had only been in existence for just over three decades by that point, Gallatin was not alone in his situation. Indeed, having arrived in 1780, Gallatin had been in the U.S. for nearly the entirety of its time as an independent nation other than the first four years. Likewise, though no one who had not been born in the British North American colonies had, to that point, served as Secretary of State, Gallatin was not the first immigrant to serve in the cabinet. Alexander Hamilton had been born on Nevis, while James McHenry had been born in Scotland. Indeed, at this point, Gallatin had eight years of trusted service in the Jefferson administration under his belt. Despite that, his foreign birth had been an issue on which he had been attacked for years, even by other Democratic-Republicans. With Giles, though, historian Tom Armstrong speculated that the true motivation behind his objection may have been political. To this point, of the five men who had served as Secretary of State, two had now gone on to become president. As one of the highest positions in the small federal bureaucracy, it carried with it a certain weight, especially for politicians like William Branch Giles, that aimed one step higher. Giles made his objections known to Madison, but he was not the only senator to do so. Senator Samuel Smith, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, likewise objected, but his motivations were not necessarily for his own ambitions, but rather to help to promote those of his brother, Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith. Secretary Smith, like Madison and Gallatin, had been a loyal member of Jefferson's cabinet, and indeed, as we saw in episode 3.38, had his own experience in at least informal negotiations with foreign diplomats. Rumors did circulate that Robert Smith was considering his own run for the presidency in the future, and as with Giles, service as Secretary of State would certainly aid in those ambitions. Gallatin had run afoul of the Smiths in the past, especially as both were strong proponents of naval preparedness, and Gallatin had done all he could during his tenure in Treasury to cut the Navy's budget. Indeed, as noted by Armstrong, there was a debate in Congress in the beginning of 1809 with Senator Smith and other allies dubbed the Navy Coalition, pushing for, quote, all armed vessels of the United States government to be put into immediate service in opposition to Gallatin's continued lobbying for a small Navy. It also didn't help that Gallatin had, as we've seen in previous episodes, denounced Secretary Smith to Jefferson and worked to have him ousted as head of the Navy Department. There were a couple of other prominent Democratic Republicans against Gallatin's appointment, including Representative Wilson Carey Nicholas of Virginia and newspaper editor William Duane. But the objections of Giles and Smith in the Senate were the key factors. When Madison asked Nicholas to do a discreet poll around the Senate to see where Gallatin's chances stood, the representative informed Madison that around half of the Senate had already rallied against Gallatin. Thus, Madison went back to the drawing board as time drew short for him to assemble a cabinet. Madison realized that, with Gallatin moving to state, that 
would leave a vacancy at Treasury. So he floated around another idea. Would Robert Smith be interested in becoming Treasury Secretary, and might that help sway his brother to support Gallatin's nomination at state? Secretary Smith seemed willing to make this deal and started to make some inquiries into the state of the Treasury Department so that he'd have an understanding of the lay of the land before taking charge. However, this compromise was quashed by Gallatin. Once he learned of Smith's inquiries and realized what was happening, he went to Madison and expressed his concerns that Smith was not capable of running the Treasury as he had. Unlike his predecessor Hamilton, Gallatin knew he was not up to the task of officially running one department while unofficially running another. And so, he asked to remain at Treasury, a position for which he had already been confirmed. And so, there would be no need for another nomination to be put forward to the Senate. This, however, now left Madison without a Secretary of State. Now, the traditional recounting of Madison's decision to offer Robert Smith the post of heading the State Department goes that, though Smith was clearly inferior and not capable of handling the duties, Madison offered Smith the post in order to keep the peace and with the expectation that he would be doing most of the work of running foreign affairs himself. However, there are a couple of problems with the summation. First, it presumes that James Madison was irresponsible enough to offer arguably the second or third most important position in the federal government to someone who he felt was unfit for the role. From all that we've learned to date in the course of this podcast about Madison, that doesn't seem likely. Also, this presumption that Smith was so incompetent doesn't correlate with the fact that Jefferson not only retained him as Secretary of the Navy for the majority of his presidency, but also put his name forward as Attorney General at one point, as discussed in Episode 3.29, and had him serve as a behind-the-scenes proxy to a British envoy at a time of diplomatic tensions. Again, from what we know of Jefferson, though he wouldn't likely have fired Smith himself, he would have found a way to let him go gently and indirectly, if indeed he was such a burden to the administration. Thus, we must reach a new conclusion, my friends. Smith was someone who had served ably as Secretary of the Navy in an administration that was working to diminish the force of the Navy, even in the face of evidence that greater naval preparedness was needed. He had not displayed disloyalty to Jefferson, nor, from what we know from extant records, attacked the administration anonymously, as previous cabinet members, particularly in the Adams administration, had done when they disagreed with the decisions made by the chief executive. As noted by Smith's biographer Tom Armstrong, quote, Smith was far from incompetent as his eight years in the Navy Department had demonstrated. The fact that Smith was the focus of a concerted effort on Gallatin's part to oust him from his position suggests that he was too independent to allow Gallatin to ride herd over him or his department without resistance. Smith possessed not only intelligence, but backbone. Madison may have entertained notions of being more involved in the affairs of the State Department than Jefferson had been when he himself had served in that role. But I've got to give you my take on this, dear friends, and please have your grains of salt at the ready to keep me honest. I think it belittles both Madison and Smith's records to continue the myth that the incoming president 
handed over the State Department to someone unfit for the role. As noted by historian Leonard White, quote, Smith dealt with routines and with details, and there would be plenty of both involved in the administration of the State Department. There would, however, be tensions created with Smith's move to state, as we shall discuss in future episodes. For now, though, with the position at state filled, Madison had to turn to a replacement in the Navy Department, which brings us to Madison's other most frequently criticized cabinet pick. Given the predominance of Northerners in his cabinet to this point in the process, Madison turned his sights further south for a candidate to fill the post of Secretary of the Navy. Given Charleston's position as one of the nation's largest ports, it should come as no surprise that a South Carolinian emerged as his pick. Paul Hamilton had fought in the South Carolina militia during the Revolutionary War and rose in political prominence in the state after the war, serving in the State House of Representatives as well as the State Constitutional Ratifying Convention before becoming a state senator, then state comptroller. In 1804, Hamilton assumed office as governor of South Carolina. He served a single two-year term and was out of office when Madison put his name forward as Secretary of the Navy. Despite a lack of direct naval experience from what I've seen, Hamilton was a proponent of military preparedness, and as the South was the base of support for Democratic Republicans, one can imagine that Madison saw Hamilton's nomination as a political win in helping to garner support from that region for doing the unthinkable in terms of Democratic-Republican ideology and expanding the Navy for national security. However, as noted by historian Robert Rutland, Hamilton also, quote, had a fondness for ardent spirits. And as described by Ketchum, Hamilton, quote, was, it seems, simply an unobjectable Southerner. Now, a couple of points to note here. First, We've already seen in the Jefferson series how difficult it had been to fill the position of Secretary of the Navy, as those with experience were more likely to be merchants with Federalist leanings. As noted last episode, the Madisons had already been charged with having Federalist tendencies. So politically, especially with so much controversy already over his initial pick for state, Madison had no cover to do something bold like reach across the aisle and risk further alienating Democratic-Republican leaders. Retaining Robert Smith would have been the best choice for Madison, but it's unlikely that Smith would have remained in a post that he had already tried to get out of during Jefferson's presidency. Also, I should note that, from what I've been able to find, or, more accurately, not find, it doesn't seem like we have much of any primary evidence to go on in terms of Madison's thinking behind his cabinet choices. As the leaders that he was consulting with were all in Washington, any discussions that happened were likely in person. And I haven't been able to find, nor have I seen references in the books that I've consulted, where anyone made notes of those meetings. Thus, we have no firm evidence as to how Madison landed on Hamilton for Navy, especially since it doesn't seem like there was a good deal of lobbying happening on Hamilton's behalf. However it happened, That's how it ended up. We'll see how this choice plays out, but with that, we have the Madison administration. As critically summed up by Rutland, quote, The truth was that Madison opted for harmony and the appearance of a broadly-based national cabinet 
rather than a collection of the best minds in the Republican Party. Madison's choices for the cabinet, however, were quickly confirmed, and most were in place in a couple of days, though it would take Hamilton until May 15th before he assumed his post at the Navy Department, which is also a possible indicator of just how unexpected the nomination was. Regardless, for the most part, the new Madison administration was able to get down to business rather quickly, which, considering what Jefferson had left outstanding, was important to do, as we shall discuss in more detail next time. Before we part ways, though, I do have some thank yous to make. Special thanks to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to get Christian's assistance for editing your podcast or audio project, reach out to him via his website, yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. For links to Your Podcast Pal or the Itinerant Band, check out the source notes page for this episode at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There, you can also find past episodes of the podcast, as well as links to more information on presidential history. The website also has information about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support presidencies. Whether you become a patron or leave a rating and review for the podcast, your support in whatever form it comes is greatly appreciated. I recently had a five-star review left on Apple Podcasts titled Impressive, which reads as follows, quote, you will not find a more prepared host. Jerry does a great job guiding us through the early presidencies. Listen to this if you are serious about knowing the presidents. Thanks so much to all of you who have left a rating and review thus far. It really helps others to know at a glance why they should give presidencies a try. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media if you don't already. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Finally, I wanted to thank you for listening. We've got much history to explore ahead in the Madison series, so be sure to return next episode to see what's next on our agenda. Until then, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.